just as the basics, the Taliban really need to understand the need of 40 million people in the country and provide that opportunity for aid agencies to be able to help those people. Searching for a path forward in Afghanistan. Today on In Asia, from the Asia Foundation, I'm Tracy Young. And I'm John Rieger. A year and a half after the Taliban's return to power, the hardships of daily life in this overwhelmingly aid-dependent country have grown increasingly dire. Yet the main highlights of the Taliban's rule have been draconian restrictions on women's right to work, to go to school, or to participate in activities outside the home. With hunger and poverty threatening a humanitarian catastrophe, the international development community seems determined not to turn away as it did in the 1990s. Yet the Taliban's restrictive policies could block even basic humanitarian aid. Joining us now to talk about navigating this increasingly pressing predicament is Abdullah Ahmad Zai, the Asia Foundation's Afghanistan country representative. Abdullah, welcome to In Asia. Thank you. Thank you, John, for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you on today's podcast. Abdullah, you're an Afghan national, and you are also an international development professional. What does the international development community want in Afghanistan, and and what should they want? Well, there are two major challenges, I think. One is to have the enabling environment so that the development community and the aid agencies are able to help the people of Afghanistan as they are grappling with extreme poverty. Lack of basic services such as healthcare, education, employment, food, and water. As you know, uh, John, the, the UN estimates over 97% of the Afghan population suffer from extreme poverty. What is the definition of extreme poverty? Extreme poverty is basically being unable to feed your family. So, up to and including starvation. Absolutely. It's extreme poverty translates into starvation, as you said. And we're talking 40 million people. 40 million population and an absolute majority of them are basically in need of aid. Now, to address these challenges, non-government organizations who are there to help the people of Afghanistan must be allowed to function effectively. And I would stress independently, where they can hire Afghan men and women to deliver the aid to the men and women uh, of the country. Uh, Any ban on women to work, for example, uh, will make it impossible for the aid organizations to function effectively. Secondly, uh, aid organizations really need donor commitments and funding to be able to continue assisting the people of Afghanistan in these extremely difficult times. There is a commitment of around $4 billion to Afghanistan. Delivery channel is uh, mostly uh, the United Nations, but the Taliban just made a decision in December of last year that women cannot work with international organizations or the government or any other institution. So just as the basics, the Taliban really need to understand the need of 40 million people in the country and provide that opportunity for aid agencies to be able to help those people. So uh, let's take a a step back. Abdullah, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and your family's history in Afghanistan? I come from a middle-class family. My father and grandfather were both business people, but were also tribal elders. My father was the go-to person in our district, Karabakh, including on issues such as family disputes over land, domestic violence, tribal uh, rivalries, and those sorts of issues. And then my father would basically determine uh, 
whether it was an issue that could be resolved within the informal dispute resolution uh, mechanism, or is it something that required the intervention from the formal justice sector? In uh, 1979, when I was just barely five years old, my father decided after the Soviet invasion that he will join the Mujahideen to fight uh, the Soviets. So since my childhood from the late 70s and early 80s, most of what I recall, unfortunately, has been revolutions, Soviet invasion, coups, and civil war, regime changes uh, in the recent you know, democratization attempt. And now again, the Taliban's uh, rule. So my last job before joining the Asia Foundation in 2012 I was the uh, chief electoral officer for the Independent Election Commission, where I basically managed the uh, 2010 parliamentary elections. Well, so that brings us to the Taliban. Who are they? Are they a religious sect? Are they an ethnic armed organization? Are they a warlord militia? And, and how representative are they of the rest of Afghanistan? John, I think it's very hard for me to describe the Taliban in one or two sentences, but Generally speaking, a majority of the Taliban are basically Afghan refugees who grew up in Pakistan, went to religious madrasas. Uh, Madrasas are religious uh, schools, basically informal religious schools. And uh, as a result of that hardline religious uh, education they received, they created their own ideology, which combines a strict interpretation of the Islamic Sharia law and the hardliner traditional practices in rural Afghanistan. They did receive support from various sects of uh, the Afghan society because they were fed up with the, with the civil war and poverty was uh, increasing and people were not feeling safe. So they did receive support. But post 2021, they took power but we did not see any evidence of a large-scale general public support for a change of the political system. And that is why I think Taliban are finding it more challenging this time to govern compared to uh, when they took uh, power in 1996. The Taliban have certainly proven themselves to be uh, effective fighters, but how are they doing at governing? Yes, Tracy, that's a, that's a very good point. I think by design, uh, the Taliban have been an effective, but also I would add disruptive force with unique fighting capabilities, which includes suicide bombing that killed scores of civilians during the past two decades, but they lack the experience to govern. They bring in madrasa scholars uh, or their own fighters to lead government institutions making it impossible to establish a basic social contract. The Taliban have also proven to ignore the diversity of the Afghan society. We have Hazaras, Pashtuns, Tajiks, Turkmens, Uzbeks, Pashayis, quite a number of uh, ethnic groups that do not see themselves uh, well represented in this new establishment that they have created. And they have the entire decision-making and policymaking confined to their own unique circle of Taliban leaders. So a disruptive force being capable and more effective does not necessarily mean that they are equally capable to govern. 
So let's get to the West's top hot-button issue, women's rights. First, the Taliban government said that young women and girls could continue to go to school. Then, step by step, they shut it all down. Why the mixed messaging? Is it a deliberate strategy, or is there some dissension in the leadership? John, I would say it's a combination of both. The Taliban political team, who were sitting in Doha for several years negotiating a peace deal with the U.S., were basically giving promises such as girls' education, women's right to work, and civic liberties, basic rights, almost making a majority of the diplomat community believe that maybe there is a Taliban 2.0 that we are basically dealing with and not necessarily the Taliban of the 90s. So what happened was that these representatives of the Taliban who were sitting in Doha for several years negotiating with the U.S. on a peace deal did not necessarily influence the hardliner Taliban mindset. You're saying the Taliban diplomats just aren't listened to by their government. That's how I would see it. So any commitment that Doha Group has made was not necessarily observed or adhered to uh, when the Taliban took power. Now, so far, they have been successful in controlling and maintaining their unity while at the same time, we know that some of the Taliban leaders are sending their own daughters to universities in Qatar and also in other countries. So I'm sure there is discontent and disagreement from within the Taliban groups on, on this particular issue of women's rights to work and women's rights to education. But their differences are not at a level which could influence decision making, unfortunately. Like you said, the Taliban was very effective and destructive at running a military operation, but it's quite different from holding and running a, a country. Do you see room for them evolving? I think it's a matter of time, uh, Tracy, to be honest. Afghanistan is not, as you know, the only uh, Muslim-majority country. There are many, many other countries, but by the way it's being ruled by the Taliban is unique, unprecedented, and irrelevant to the 21st uh, century. So when will they come to that understanding that it's a different era and, and uh, not adjusting to it will mean they become more irrelevant to the realities on the ground? Abdullah, just yesterday, the New York Times reported the assassination in her own home of female former MP Mursal Nabizada. It's a crime, but it's also a tragedy. To rise as she did, this young woman must have been extremely gifted. Yes, uh, John, I know uh, Mursal, and I was just shocked uh, with this uh, incident that occurred. She is one of the very few uh, Afghan politicians and lawmakers who decided to stay in Afghanistan. I'm pretty sure she had a different dream for herself and for the country, but unfortunately she was brutally murdered. There are daily uh, reports of targeted assassinations of former Afghan National Defense and Security Forces, individuals associated with the Intelligence Bureau, or even on personal rivalries. 
Uh, and that also explains why scores of Afghans uh, keep leaving the country since August of 2021. A very serious brain drain has been caused. Abdullah, do you ever see yourself returning back to Afghanistan? Absolutely. And I stay uh, true to my statement uh, on record that if the situation in Afghanistan improves enough where my safety is assured and my daughters can get their education, three of my daughters are going to university here and I will not compromise on their future uh, simply because I want to return to Afghanistan. But if the same opportunity is available to my children in Afghanistan, I will be one of the first uh, few people that would that would want to return. Of course, the international community does not want to let millions of Afghans starve just because the government is too hardline. But now, in the most recent development, the Taliban have banned female NGO workers. Why is that such a big deal? Absolutely. There is a practicality to a delivery of aid. The majority of human losses in the past two decades in Afghanistan were of adult men with families. The female uh, head of the household should be able to make a living. They either need to work or there should be a delivery of aid insured to them. Those women cannot interact with men. So once the aid agencies are unable to employ women, there is no possibility for aid to be delivered to those vulnerable women, half of the country's population. This is where I am baffled by the current course of Afghanistan. That seems like such an important practical question. Really let the women die? It's unfathomable to me. Well, first of all, as I said earlier, it's It's an issue of a very unique interpretation that the Taliban have of the Islamic values and Sharia law. Unfortunately, uh, people who make these decisions do not engage with subject matter experts or the general population in dialogues to be convinced or convince the audience on what those decisions are that they make. It's basically decisions are made by a bunch of people sitting in Kandahar. It's announced in form of a decree by the supreme leader. And then the entire government needs to implement that decision effective the date of the decree. I mean, the previous government, uh, yes, there was corruption was a major issue. It had a lot of performance issues as well. But at least there was an information flow both ways. Uh, People were raising their voice. Uh, People were heard somehow. Officials were basically engaged in debates and dialogues with the public through mass media engagements. Under the Taliban, that door has been completely shut. It's a decision and then they uh, tweet on it or they make a few announcements on TV and that's their communication strategy. It's worth noting that Afghanistan is in a pretty tough neighborhood. Who are their international neighbors and how are they getting along? As we speak, Afghanistan is basically sharing a border with Pakistan, Iran, China, and three uh, Central Asian countries, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and uh, Uzbekistan. One neighbor that have been the most influential, at least 
perceived as more influential than the others was uh, Pakistan. And that's naturally believable because majority of these Taliban leaders were living in Pakistan and were gaining support from that country. But then Iran basically engages uh, with the Taliban and uh, looking at its past history, we don't have any precedent of a cordial relation between Taliban and uh, the Iranian government in the 90s. So one could probably understand the Pakistani support base for the Taliban, but Iran was more of a surprise to me in particular. Their support was possibly twofold, preferring a government in Afghanistan that is not necessarily a US-backed state. Second, Taliban were more effective or perceived as effective partners in fighting ISIS. From Russian perspective or Central Asian perspective, a stable Afghanistan enables a fight against ISIS or any other armed opposition groups. Uh, and their trade route with Pakistan was also and remains to be quite important for the Central Asian states. Uh, now, each country had its own plan and that's how they implemented it. But our neighbors, I think, are in best position now to engage in dialogues amongst themselves, China, Pakistan, Central Asian countries in Iran, to have a unified strategy on their engagement with the Taliban regime. If they engage with the Taliban based on their own uh, short-term or mid-term interests while ignoring the uh, other neighbors, Afghanistan may well fall back into another hotbed of uh, violence where one country supports one side and another country another. So that's my fear. So how much better could things get for an Afghanistan still under Taliban rule? And what has to happen to make that so? I will, I will give you my personal opinion. Uh, and that's, I am pleasantly surprised that 16 months after the Taliban's takeover, I still see there are opportunities that they could seize and build on and, and create a better environment. Normally, when such an autocratic kind of an entity gets to power militarily and has no legitimate process rolled out or introduced or committed to uh, not even a constitution, the number of opportunities that they could have would be very, very limited. But I still see opportunities for the Taliban to remain part of the decision-making in the politics of Afghanistan. But I think the best way forward for them is to engage with the political actors and civil society of Afghanistan and come up with a roadmap as to where is Afghanistan going to go in the next, let's say, two years? What kind of a political system will we have? How do we choose our leaders? What will the legislature look like? What will the judiciary look like? Uh, how will the basic rights of people be ensured? What is the level of freedom of expression in the country? How representative the government would look like? I think the starting point is there. 
without this process being initiated where Afghans really see light at the end of the tunnel, I really don't see how status quo could continue. So then what is the worst case scenario? If the status quo continues, John, it's just a matter of time before Afghanistan falls into another chaotic situation, another civil war. And if our neighbors do not engage more assertively with the Taliban, then each country will end up having their own interest uh, and invest in certain groups in Afghanistan, and then it, it becomes another, another battlefield. But the last point, and I'll leave it uh, with a positive note, is that the opportunities do exist. I am pleasantly surprised, I would say, that the international community did not repeat the mistakes of the 90s when the uh, Soviet-backed regime collapsed to the Mujahideen and a civil war erupted uh, and the international community abandoned Afghanistan. That abandonment has not taken place yet. And uh, we want more patience. Abdullah, thank you uh, so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, John and Tracy, for having me. And uh, thanks for your time. And that's our show for this week. We hope you'll make a note in that nice, fresh 2023 calendar to join us again in two weeks on In Asia. Or you can do as the digital natives do and subscribe. Why not? Why not, indeed. Until then, I'm John Rieger. And I'm Tracy Young. Thanks for listening. Thank you.